actually conflict and difference is a given. You can't avoid it. It's a given. So the question is, how do you deal with it? How do you set up an atmosphere in which the people in your team or department are prepared to accept the responsibility and make the effort to resolve those things when they happen and not to penalise people either for raising them or for making the mistake in the first place? Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, specialist HR recruiters. Now, whether you, of course, you are listening to this for the first time, the hundredth time, or even the thousandth time, please let me take this opportunity to say thank you for joining me today, especially if you want to maximize your understanding of a cancel culture and why that's silencing us at work. Because today I'm joined by Simon Vanishaw, OBE, who is a former Perrier award-winning stand-up comedian and co-founder of Stonewall. He was referred to in the 1980s as the UK's first openly gay comedian, and he now works with businesses and organisations to encourage honest conversations about diversity to achieve real change. Now, Simon's been listed as one of the UK's most influential thinkers by HR magazine, and he was called Inclusion Royalty by the Sunday Times. So as an HR audience that we have here and all you listeners out there, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. And we're going to focus it on something where Simon became really frustrated, I guess, by the silencing of views and the impact of cancel culture in the workplace. So he went ahead and wrote a manifesto for change, which has seen him publish a book titled The Power of Difference. And we're going to find out all about that book and what motivated him to write that in more detail during the course of this episode. Now, the book is actually a timely call to action in response to a growing intolerance of different political and social views in the wider world and the negative impact this is having on how we behave at work. It's been evidenced recently by a YouGov poll which states that 40% of the Britons at the end of 2021 said they'd stop themselves from expressing political or social views for fear of judgment or negative responses from others at work. Topics people were reluctant to talk about included race relations, discrimination, sexuality, women's and gay rights and transgender issues, all topics we've covered in depth during other episodes of these HR L&D podcasts. So today, stay with me. We're going to discover how a cancel culture is silencing us at work and what we can do collectively to support real progress. So we're always going to find out, of course, more about the Power of Difference book. So without further ado, let me welcome Simon Fanshaw over you to the show. How are you feeling today, Simon? Hello. Very good. Thank you very much. What a what a massive introduction. I, I, I can't wait to meet me. <laughs> well, I've been super excited by this interview. There's lots to get through. You've done so much. You've achieved so much from comedy and, of course, from the work you've done, uh, which obviously I, I won't go through again in the introduction. But let me start with this first question. It's something I ask all my guests, which is this. What, does, what do the words human resources mean to you? Well, I'm in a slightly curious position that I've never had a job. I mean, I've been freelance since 1978, and this whole idea of, you know, WFH working from home, that's not new to me at all. So 
I'm a slightly curious fish in that respect because I feel like other people are catching up, you know, and have been doing over the past period. So I don't have a kind of institutional, I've never had that relationship as a staff member to HR, but I've met and worked with, you know, hundreds, I guess, thousands of people in HR. And I think they divide into two very different groups of people. I think there's one group of people who are very transactional, and that's partly because of the way the organisation asks them to do, but it's also because they themselves are very process-driven. And there was a sort of sense, I think, in HR, that if you did the same kind of, you ran the same process in the same way with people, you got a fair outcome. And of course, that's probably not, in fact, it's definitely not true. Um, <laughs> but so so one group of them is are, are the sort of process types. And I, I do think some, you know, you do hear people talk when they talk disparagingly about HR, that tends to be the ones they're referring to. The ones that we tend to work with in Diversity by Design are the strategic people who who have a view of HR, which is a much more transformed view. And many of your your listeners and viewers will will be in this camp where actually what they they do is that they're there to enable and support managers and other people to make better decisions about not just, I always call it in, up and across. In other words, hiring, promoting and deploying. And it's that group of people that I think tend to think more in a more forward way about what HR might need to do. I mean, it's gone, isn't it, from personnel. It you has. Know, it's, it's shed that mind. task. Yeah, that, that, that so, label. You know, I, I, do you, I mean, I, maybe, maybe you think you don't agree with those two categories. Maybe you think there's another one. But I think no. we broadly fall into those two. I, I wouldn't disagree at all. I think certainly most of our, our listeners are in that second camp. Um, I think um, there's a really important uh, link, I guess, an alignment between making people perform at their best which starts with inclusion starts with feeling comfortable at work starts with being comfortable in your own skins comfortable with the leadership you have around you to enable that strategic element you talked about and i think that's something that i love about doing these shows is i bring people like yourself you may not be an hr practitioner per se but actually the work you do has a huge influence on the way that practitioners go about doing their jobs and so you're a real enabler for allowing them to perform i would say at, at their best which is which is great and certainly you're someone that's has a matter has had a massive influence on the hr industry so we talked a little bit or i talked a little bit about in in the introduction about how social conflicts in the wider world are really impacting our behaviors at work what i'd like to ask you simon is why does this really matter and why not why now yeah it's a good question there's something i think quite fundamental that transcends the current uh sort of evidence or symptoms of this and that's this, that we, we wouldn't talk about diversity or we wouldn't talk about inclusion. <laughs> Sounds incredibly obvious to say this, if we weren't all different. You know, if we were the same, then it would be really easy to include each other because we would simply know. But underneath this lies something very, I think, just profoundly human. And the human challenge or the human condition is that I can never understand you and you can never understand me. We just can't see the world in the way that other people can see and feel and experience the world. But what we can do, and it's the great human challenge, is to go on the journey to try and do so in the certain knowledge that we'll never end. That journey will never end. And it is in the process of the discovery of difference of each other that we discover our ability to collaborate and at the most, uh, uh, at the highest level, our, our ability to love each other. So underneath all of this for me lies that idea that we are prof- that we are different and that's in our essence. So then what happens is that 
you know, when you're in campaigning like I have been in my life or when you're in an organisation and you're producing a particular outcome or you're trying to uh, transform the, the organisation in a particular way, all of that depends on your ability to collaborate with other people in order to achieve a commonly agreed objective. It is impossible to do that if what you expect of other people is complete agreement about everything. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's listening, who's got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a parent or a child, everybody knows that. I mean, I don't know how people who go down the purity spiral where you have to agree about everything with them. If they're in a relationship, I don't know how they decide what movie to go and see. <laughs> because, you know, life is made up of the way in which we accommodate each other. So. What's, I think, difficult about what's happening at the moment is the, the desire to shut out or remove certain ideas from the discourse. That's going against our very existence and nature as human beings, because actually conflict between us, disagreement between us, that's a given. I mean, it's not, it's not something you can avoid. It's actually given. It happens all the time in tiny ways and very big ways. So I, the question for me is not, can we avoid this conflict? Can we shut out these other views? It's actually, how do we deal with them? And you said something interesting earlier on. You talked about feeling comfortable at work. I know what you mean, but I'm not convinced that actually we should feel comfortable the whole time. I think the question is when we don't feel comfortable, how we support each other to find that as a positive experience rather than a negative experience. It's, it's interesting. I know where you're going with this and I don't disagree. However, in a, in a, I would say in a perfect society, you should the, the issues that make you uncomfortable to bring up, which you should be able to bring up, wouldn't be uncomfortable to bring up if we were yes. all accepting in the first place so no, i totally right. get where you're going but i guess i'm looking at the uh no, you're absolutely right to do that right. and, I'm, and i'm not saying i mean i use this 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 sort of triple division as a way of trying to think about behavior and language and i think about behavior and language as careless thoughtless or malicious so Careless is when you 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 just said i just said something the other day i mean it was silly i said oh you know the great british snack or something i said you know, the bacon sandwich everybody loves a bacon sandwich i said and the bloke in a yamulka in the front row went actually not me and then roared with laughter and you know what i mean it, it, it was just i mean, just didn't notice so that's careless and sort of that rarely matters and basically that's a question of good humor sometimes it's can be a little bit you can break it down further as well it's the great bacon sandwich made with french baguette and danish bacon i mean it's <laughs> there's all that there's all yeah. that it's not british you're quite right but you know you get the point in other words sure. you just say something and then it's not quite true and then we get over it it's malicious stuff you know, when, when you can tell that somebody is deliberately setting out to hurt somebody, that's a set of circumstances. Yeah. The really the really knobbly stuff is the stuff in the middle, the thoughtless stuff, because it's it's hugely ambiguous. And it's usually the product of a mismatch between intention and effect. So in other words, somebody will say something, typical examples, a white person will say to a black person in Britain, where do you come from? Now, the truth of the data is, and the families are, that actually the vast percentage of black and Asian people in Britain, their families will have come here since the Second World War. But the baggage that is inherent in saying to a black person, if you're white, where do you come from, is that you don't belong here. That you, that there's, there's a sort of audacity to your claim for equality. So 
that's the moment at which the intention may not be malign, but it may be received in a way that's uncomfortable and difficult. What I'm really saying is that it's not that I want that discomfort to happen. I'm just saying it's inevitable. Sure. Men say to women the whole time, how do you manage, you know, looking after the children and having a job? And all the women I know who say that, who have that said to them, just want to smack the bloke in the face because no one asked a man of that. The point about these things is that sometimes they're just not, not everything that upsets or offends us is meant to do so. So all I'm saying is it's really ambiguous, this stuff. And actually the making of mistakes and the stumbling around is part of how we learn. So what we somehow have to do is create a circumstance in which people who are upset by those kind of remarks and offended actually are able, without punishment or, or sanction, to say so. But that doesn't necessarily just completely penalise the person who said it by moving their intention from thoughtless to malicious. No, I think so, you've articulated that very well. If I, if I focus a little bit on that thoughtless thing, because... Well, just to break, take it to a different slightly different direction. I would say that diversity and inclusion has become much more into our thoughts, our consciousness over the last 48 months. It's been there before, of course, and we've been trying to make change for a lot longer than that, or, or you know, for many, a lot for longer. But certainly from an HR perspective, it seems to really be at the forefront now of, of an HR agenda to say, okay, what are we doing? What does our culture look like? What are our values? How can we improve you know, our approach to diversity, equality, and, and inclusion? And you know, if even if I park the question of why weren't they thinking that 48 months ago, it's certainly something that's relevant now so bearing in mind all the things you've just mentioned there talking about you know our behavior at work and, and social conflicts in the wider place of work how can we use that information to better support hr managers going forward bringing that into an hr context well there's a few distinctions that i think help us to do this so let's just accept for a moment diversity and inclusion, notwithstanding that I think at the moment one of the problems of this whole area is that it's been drowned in a kind of undergraduate language, which is designed, I think, to make sure that most people don't understand what anybody's talking about. So I won't use words like intersectionality, privilege, blah, 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 because I just don't think they fall into normal speak. And as I'm saying, you know, my big task in this, in this, the, the power of difference is about rescuing all this stuff to its fundamental kind of human roots. So some distinctions that I think that are helpful. So let's accept, though, the diversity and inclusion with my caveat there about sure. um, jargon. So if we look at diversity, the first thing I would say is that I think it's useful to disaggregate it into two separate focuses. The diversity deficits, this is where, in a way, a lot of this stuff has arisen from, because it's about discrimination and it's about the desire to rid us and our organisations of discrimination. So the deficits are really important. However, they are different. Solving the deficits is different from what happens when you start to unleash the talent and then you realise the dividends from diversity. The trouble is they're often talked about in the same breath. So what you have is you have on the deficit side is you need to recognise group disadvantage. So actually, although there's a lot of personal um, uh, dislike of BAME, for instance, and there was a wonderful conference a while back called Hashtag BAME Over, rather brilliantly named. I, LGBT, you know, somebody said to me the other day, are you LGBT? I said, you can't be all of them. <laughs> You know, these big labels, they describe us in certain aspects of our lives, but they don't define us. 
So they're useful in understanding group disadvantage. But I was on a panel the other day with doling out some money to some diversity projects in a particular sector. And one of the Royal Academies is running that. And somebody raised this thing about, oh, are any of these projects, it was about engineering, are any of these projects, you know, focusing on LGBT uh, people in engineering? And I said, well, look, here's the thing. I need to understand if there are any particular barriers to lesbians and gays in engineering. Are there any particular barriers in relation to trans people in, in, in engineering? Because we know and it's evidence that there are for women. But the idea that you simply lump people together and then assume a set of things about them is quite dangerous. So yeah. I would say that the first thing that helps us is to recognise that the, the groups, women, LGBT, BAME, those are useful, but only insofar as we're trying to describe group disadvantage. And we also recognise that within those groups, there are subgroups and they don't all have the same experience. And you could look, I won't go into it, but you can look at the educational attainment and yeah. the census breaks it down by ethnic categories and they're really quite different. On the other side now, you've got what happens when you combine the differences that people bring. So... What I would say is that the first thing I'd ask, I always say to HR directors, to people, officers, recruiters, whatever, the first thing is, yeah, you've got to understand what your deficits are, but you've really got to understand them in detail. But don't confuse that task with now what happens when I'm putting together a project team or I'm marketing to somewhere or wherever. Now, in order to achieve the dividend from diversity, I've got to be really accurate about what kind of diversity and what kind of dividend. I'll give a very simple example. Somebody in an English language department of one of the big universities, she asked us, the head of the department asked us to help her diversify the staff. And I said, why? Because you've got fantastic staff, you've got great money, you've got brilliant research, it's all going gangbusters. You know, seriously, what problem are you trying to solve? She said, it's really simply stated. There is great literature being written in English by people who are not English. And I want that representation of the English literature canon in my style. She wants Chimamanda Adichie. Key, clearly, what she, what she wants is geographic and cultural yeah. diversity, not ethnic diversity. So I think that distinction helps. And then I think on what I was saying before about the inclusion piece, I'd say one about that, and then, you know, I'm talking on, <laughs> chat, chat, chat. But what I would say is that if we're really serious about inclusion, that actually means you include all voices. It doesn't mean that you say certain voices are not to be included because of who is expressing those thoughts, not of the thoughts that are expressed, but who's expressing them. And what is happening at the moment, and social media exacerbates this, is that whole swathes of people are being told they do not have a legitimate voice. So you find this around issues in race, you find it around issues in feminism, you find it particularly around issues in LGB and T, et cetera. And, and that is very, very destructive at work because actually if we can't express ourselves, we can't collaborate, we can't innovate, and we can't you know, develop and design uh, new projects and new new products. Uh, I'll be honest, I've uh, for a slight moment there, Simon, I was so focused on listening to you. I was so immersed. I almost forgot I was hosting this, uh, this podcast. I really <laughs> find it absolutely fascinating. I really actually like your view uh, and appreciate your views here because it's sometimes difficult. And I've, you know, it's difficult for me sometimes to talk about issues of diversity and inclusion as a white Caucasian heterosexual male because you know I automatically had a position of privilege and therefore sometimes I feel like 
that's difficult for me to talk about because I haven't had experiences that many people have had in feeling marginalized in different ways for whatever reason that might be. And therefore, that am I the right person to be raising a voice? But if you don't, then no one raises a voice, no change ever happens. But at the same time, I think there's a risk of, uh, I don't know if you, if you were going this way, but it's something that I took away because it's something I, I have an issue with potentially, which is over-labeling, over-gearing the labels. Mm. Sometimes labels aren't always needed. And if we use them too much, actually, we, we can go against what we're trying to achieve by ostracizing groups without meaning to, trying to do the right thing, Absolutely. adding tick boxes, adding categorizing yeah. people that actually don't want to be categorized, never felt they were needed to be categorized. And suddenly we're creating, you know, yeah. I don't know, uh, opposition. Well, two, I think two, two or three things to say about that. Uh, firstly is that I'm often open by saying to people, you know, when I'm working with a, I was with a big, very big housing provider the other day, 50, 60 people in the room. And I just said, look, everybody in the room has a view that is legit. Everybody has skin in this game. Everybody has a view to express and an absolutely legitimate basis to express it. We may have different experiences and those different experiences may carry with them different forms of status. So I'm not in the kind of oppression Olympics. I'm not going to sit here and say, right, well, you were born on a council estate, but you're white, and you were born and uh, you're black, but your parents were lawyers. I mean, you know, we could play this game forever. What we know is that prejudice is very binary. So if you're perceived to be disabled, female, or not white, we know that if you if people can tell that of you, then prejudice will probably strike yeah. your life. Very it may fair. not be an, it may not be an all day event, but it's certainly an everyday event. And you know, it's not about personal identity; it's about the way in which the world perceives you. So that is an absolute daily experience. And if you're in any of those three groups of people, you will experience in a way that I don't, because I'm. Well, I mean, you might say I'm as camp as old tits, but <laughs> actually, um, you know. I like to think I'm frightfully masculine and, you know, very not gay. But there again, a whole set of stereotypes. I've just put right. But you know what I'm saying? In other words, uh, you know, I'm not immediately gay. And if you're gay, you have to, hence the importance of coming out. You might well have all, I don't know what your class background is or whatever. But I've, you know, often find guys saying to me, um, but hang on, you know, I was born on a council estate. I had three school meals. I didn't go to university. I've actually dragged myself up. That's a whole life story that we shouldn't dismiss because it turns out that person happens to be white and heterosexual, neither of things of which they chose to be. They simply are. Yeah, sure. The point about it is, I think you're right, there are too many labels. It's not... The, the, the only value of the labels, as I say, is to describe part of the experience and it usually relates to disadvantage. Not always. I mean, there will be cause for black celebration. There will be cause for women's celebration. There will be cause for gay pride. Yes, there's all that. Uh, but predominantly, when we're talking about diversity, it's a predominantly a tool that's valuable in describing discrimination. But everybody has to have a role in solving that, you can't say to people, you know, people say this thing as a, you know, as a gay man. You know, sure. As yeah. a, and you think as if that somehow justifies what you're about to say or legitimises it. Well, it doesn't. I'm sorry. What you're about to say, I'll judge you on what you're saying. And, you know, the privilege thing, I think, is dangerous. It's an American term. 
I genuinely think that in this country it means something different from what it means in America. In this country, it means, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, <laughs> Eden, Toffs, Asker. That's what privilege means in this country. Well, I'm definitely not in that camp for privilege, that's for sure. I came... Hello. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I farmers. Always, Well, people always say to me, you know, you're very middle class, and it always annoys me because I'm upper. <laughs> but but my point being is if you know you went to somebody in the biker state in newcastle and a white person told them they were privileged it's just not going to resonate sure. if you said to them look you're poor and a black person's poor actually you might find they've got something more to deal with on top of what you've got to deal with they'll probably go oh yeah poor them that's a shame what can we do to help but if you tell them they're privileged that feels to me like a real imposition on the reality of their life and it's only middle class people who say that you know, so, so I'm I'm pretty sceptical about all that kind of stuff. If we're both in agreement that um, diversity, or we, I think we definitely agree, that diversity is not about ticking a box. Labels shouldn't contain people. They should be enablers of differences, I think, as you mentioned, not uh, something that I've read on your website, not prisons of sameness, I think you put That's down. That's right. It's in the, it's in the book. Did we mention I had a... Yes. It's in we're definitely going to get to the book. I'm really excited to get to the book. So don't worry, stay tuned for that. But now that ED&I is in the spotlight, are you seeing the process by which... I guess the way that HR leaders or that businesses are approaching the subject of creating diversity change. I think that HR is in danger and diversity is in danger of becoming a tool of enforcement rather than a celebration of difference. And I think that's partly because people are scared of the conflicts, the disagreements, the tensions. So when they are in a situation where something happens and a black person now empowered more so to do so to a white person, I find that offensive, that was racist or whatever, managers, that's, that's difficult. And what I would say is that we have to do two things, though, in response to it. We have to hear the subjective feeling. If I say to you, you say something, I'm just whatever and you you know i say to you nick i thought that was really homophobic well i what i would ask is that you listen to that yeah. but i'd also ask that i listen to the fact that you say to me oh, i'm really sorry i didn't mean this. is it oh okay now so in other words the subjective we have to hear the subjective and i have this phrase which i use we have to hear to listen to hear not listen to respond yeah but the second thing is what we do about it is a separate process than the acknowledgement of the subjective feeling of joy or hurt. Because you can't run an organisation or a team or a department on subjective views of life and subjective experience. You have to have a collective process which everybody trusts, which maps out the way forward. Now, that is tough for managers. But what I would say is that, back to my original point, is that actually conflict and difference is a given. You can't avoid it. It's a given. So the question is, how do you deal with it? How do you set up an atmosphere in which the people in your team or department are prepared to accept the responsibility and make the effort to resolve those things when they happen and not to penalise people either for raising them or for making the mistake in the first place? It's actually, it, it links nicely to a statement that I really enjoyed reading on your website. For those, I will put a link in the show notes. It's uh, Diversity by Design. I think you mentioned earlier, .uk. For those interested, click through to the show notes so you can find out more. But there's a statement on there which says, and I'll quote yourself uh, here, Simon, says, diversity is not safe. Safe spaces don't offer safety from disagreement. They, off they offer safety for disagreement. 
I love that. I think you've kind of explained that quite well. I think that's a, a, an apt well, time to bring that up, really. Well, there's another great book, actually, that, that I really, really like by a woman called Amy C. Edmondson. It's called The Fearless Organisation. And Amy is, uh, she's the doyen, really, of research into what's known as psychological safety. And there's a terrific story that she tells about why she, and how she got into this work. She was, she was examining the relationship between psychological safety, which she defines as an atmosphere in which dissent and speaking is expected and not penalised. So you're expected to contribute a view. And she was looking at the, the, the correlation between that and medical errors. So she was looking at, at, okay. at surgery and hospitals. And they did a huge data set. And at the end of it, they discovered that there was indeed a correlation between psychological safety and medical errors. But it was the exact opposite of what they expected. The teams that were more psychologically safe made more errors. And they were absolutely astonished by this. And they could, and they cut the data, recut the data, and then she had a moment, and she said to her researchers, "I just want you to go and ask another couple of questions." Then she realised that her second thought was right. It's not that they make more mistakes; it's that they report more mistakes. Okay. Psychologically unsafe teams suppress their mistakes; they hide them, and consequently, they don't learn. So what I would say to people in HR about this conflict and safe spaces that are safe for disagreement, not from disagreement, is the, the, the dividend, the prize from making mistakes is that you learn from them, that you innovate, that you improve, and the performance gets better. The danger of not doing that is that you suppress learning, you suppress views, and you don't innovate. That, and you asked me right at the beginning, why does this matter at work? That's why it matters at work. Because if you think of any other strategy, if you, if we were sitting around and say, I don't know, we're a toy company, you've got a young boy, we're a toy company, we're going to develop some toys, you wouldn't sit around saying, well, I'm not listening to you because you're an adult. Would you? You'd say, what's the market research? What are the markets? What's the supply chain? Blah, 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 blah. You do this in-depth discussion and you'd really go at it hammer and tongs, wouldn't you, to find out what you thought was the best new toy. Why do we not do that in relation to diversity and our ordinary human contacts and conflicts? Now, we can make rules about how we do that. No shouting, no swearing, no, we can, okay, we can do that, that's fine. But we shouldn't make rules about what we talk about. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. I think that's, um, it's interesting, like you thinking to respond. I wasn't meaning to do this, but when you mentioned Amy's um, anecdote, if you like, I was trying to think of what the answer might be before you got there. And I came up with a different conclusion, but I actually think it still applies. So I was going to assume that they made the most mistakes because they were the most dedicated, i.e. they put the most work in. So when you you deliver more 
uh, more treatments, you do more, you are at risk of making more mistakes. And I was thinking then, I'm a sports fan of the Michael Jordan. There's a famous quote, and I won't better quote it exactly, but it's something along the lines of, I became as successful as I did because I missed more than anybody else because I practiced yeah. more than anybody else. And I think I think that can still be true in the world of, of inclusion and HR practice and getting this right. We shouldn't be afraid to fail. We should, but if we don't push the envelope, if we don't keep trying and we give up because we had a bit of bad feedback, we won't get there. And there's a really interesting report recently about the cancel culture called Dousing the Flames, which I think people might might enjoy. And it was a massive piece of fieldwork that was done in 2020. And one of the conclusions was very clearly that it's not change that people don't like. It's the imposition of change when they're not allowed to sort of blunder and make mistakes. And in a sense... The problem with using the word mistake or fail is that it's an implication that you've got something wrong. Whereas you you may have you may have upset somebody else, but I don't think that, that's not wrong. That's just kind of inevitable. I mean, can anybody? I mean, who the hell is in a marriage where you haven't had an argument? Sure. Do you know what I mean? I mean? Or a friendship where you're having an argument or where there hasn't been a misunderstanding or a, a whatever. And so this idea that, that people, what people are doing at the moment is when they move the thoughts from, from thoughtless, to the language and behaviour from thoughtless to malicious, what they're doing is they're defining the crime, finding the person guilty and imposing the sentence and the punishment. They're doing all that themselves as if somehow their view is the only view. And what I'm arguing is that actually it's precisely the opposite. Somebody said to me the other day, but racism is racism is racism. Okay, define racism. You know, the point is there's a range of stuff going on here. Is it racist to say to a black person, if you're white, where do you come from? Well, I wouldn't say it's racist. It's got baggage. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Whereas yeah, if you use the N word or I mean, something really yeah, extreme, the way it's articulated, the connotations behind all those things, yeah. But my point is that people are what people are doing is they're saying they're determining the, the crime, finding them guilty, and at that point, there's no dialogue left because they've excluded. Ironically, as used that using that example, if you have you know, if you're not remotely racist, it's zero percent. If there was a scale, of, then you were more likely to ask that question as well because that none of those connotations exist. So it's the first thing you'd ask, like you'd ask anyone else of any of any uh, background. So I, 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 I take that point. And intention is very important here. I mean, you know, you know, he 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 sashayed across the room like his hips were on walnuts. He was so girly, he had such a feminine laugh. These are all expressions that people might apply to a camp gay man. Well, some people might say, how dare you, that's stereotyping gay men. On the other hand, it might just be true. So, so, and that might person say, so oh, well, I know, dear. Campers or what, you know. I mean, a description, you have to contextualise things sure. to a greater degree. And you can't appoint yourself the judge and jury on that. And that's, the, that's one of the problems for HR, is that what HR's got to do, as I say, is to listen to that stuff, be the listening post. The managers have got to be the listening post. But then there's got to be some accepted way of resolving that. And the one thing I've learned on this, I used to think that you always had to intervene immediately. If you heard something, saw something, whatever, the thing to do is, what I've learned from listening to people's stories is that's not always the case. Because often people don't want you to intervene immediately because actually if they've been the victim of something like that, the danger is they can feel even more vulnerable because it's quite awkward to intervene. And 
it creates a situation. But the one thing I know is that everybody wants their manager to take what they felt and experienced seriously. Sure. They do not ever want their manager to say, oh, don't be silly. Oh, that was yesterday. It was just a joke. Get over it. No, that is a, that's an absolutely unhelpful response. It should always be, tell me how you feel. So take that in mind then. Why, when it comes to diversity has and inclusion, why has progress been, I would say, so slow or continues to be so slow? I would argue that it's definitely sped up. But ultimately, you know, we're still having a conversation about this now. And I've had many podcast conversations about the subject in the past. Why is it so painfully slow to, for change to occur? I think there's two or three things that are going on. So we've concentrated a lot over the years on sort of initiatives and things like training or things like unconscious bias training. I mean, the thing about unconscious bias training, and you can read the research and the commentary over the last two years particularly, but there's an increasing critique of the idea, A, that biases are unconscious. I don't think they are. They don't sit at the back of our heads and leap out and we have no control over them. What, what biases are, is are, they're things that we have learned. And so what we need to do is become aware of them. But actually changing them is a process which is a combination of being conscious of them and, mat- and then mattering, or the effect, the negative effect on people, mattering uh, to you. So you want to change it. But the other thing you have to do is that we don't change the way we behave by rational persuasion, because that wasn't how we learned it. So you can't train people necessarily to behave differently. What you have to do is find ways of putting us in different situations. You have to change processes. You have to make it possible for more people to work with people who are different from them and value that difference. And so there are a whole set of things, I think. So that's one element of it, I think, is that we've, we've, we've gone on a whole lot of telling people how to think as if that will actually change their behaviour. And then we don't do what we need to do, which is give us opportunity to make better decisions by changing processes. I think the other thing, which is, there's a there's a little fact that I counted a few years ago, and I've just updated it. And it is this, that, and all I did was look at the pictures and the names on company websites of the FTSE 100. And I looked okay. for the chairs, the chief execs and the chief finance officers. And I concluded, and I have to tell you, the margin of error is that the, the, the disparity is so huge that there's a totally acceptable margin of error if I got some of the faces and names wrong. There are more white men called John, David and Andrew in those top 300 posts than there are women or people of colour. Now, I've just done it again for the book. And in fact, there's progress. You have to include the Michaels now. So that's fantastic. <laughs> We've actually got some. But interesting question. Why does that happen? Is that because the people at the top of FTSE 100 companies are actively racist and sexist, that they are actively excluding black people or or women? My suspicion, and the research backs this up, is that actually the process, the mechanism that's going on there is about what those people value in their successes. So what they'll do is they'll say, what we need on a board is we need people who've had executive experience in this field or this sector. And if the sector or the field reflects that gender and ethnic imbalance, then you will continue to recruit people that are the same as you. So in saying I'm valuing this and I'm valuing that, actually what you're saying is I value people like me. 
you're also not doing, which what which is what you could or should do on a board, is to say it's not what I value in each individual. It's what I value in the differences between the individuals. So if you look at a combination of men and women, there was a very interesting piece Harvard Business Review published uh, last April, and they looked at executive teams that um, took higher or lower risk decisions about growth and expansion. And the metric they used was ones who'd gone for a mergers and acquisition strategy, which is much higher risk, or those who'd gone for a research and development strategy, which is lower risk and a longer term growth. They discovered there was a correlation between exec teams where there was a better balance of men and women who took the longer term lower risk strategies and where they were all men who took the shorter term higher risk strategies and when they went down into the, to look at why that was the case and the operation of the teams one of the conclusions they drew was that as women go up organizations and get more senior they start to calibrate risk in a different way because if a bloke tries something in an organization and it doesn't work the organization tends to say well he had a go and if a woman tries something in an organisation it doesn't work, the organisation tends to say, oh, she can't do it. So there's a higher level of jeopardy mm. for women the higher up they go. So they start to calibrate risks differently. So I'm not saying individual women, I'm saying as a group. Sure. So when you put men and women together, something culturally happens between those two groups that actually changes the approach to risk. Back to the board question, you don't want all people all of the people to have exactly the identikit experience. Because if you've got to the top of a business that or a sector which is imbalanced in gender and ethnicity and is all full of graduates and they're all people who worked in banking or insurance, or, actually the truth of it is they've all come up through quite similar routes. Now, of course, there'll be differences between them as individual characters. So that's part of what you're looking for in a board and part of the diversity. But actually the cultural mix the mix of sexes, actually, it's the difference in the group that gives you better decisions, sure. not endlessly recruiting the same person. So what your question was is, why is it so slow and so small? A, because people don't accompany the change in behaviour they want with the change in process. And secondly, that then gives them that ability to value things differently. And, and it's much as much about in-group affection as out-group hostility. Now, I definitely want to get to my next question, which is going to be talking about your book and the power of difference, which you've, you've highlighted there, some of the, some examples there. But you've, you've put, brought a little question to my mind. And I, I don't know if you've thought about this. Maybe you have. Maybe I'm, I'm the last to think about it. I don't know. But you talked about the, the you did some analysis there on the different names that have made it to the FTSE 300, I think you mentioned, and, and, and where, you know, the names David, John, Andrew, and Michael. I would argue as well that there's got to be a connection, not just between the names, but also between the wealth poverty lines here. So take out, although, of course, this also links to cultural identity back in and, and access to certain things and wealth. But if we if we look at it just from a financial point of view, that those that have more wealth have access to more opportunities, have access to better education and so on and so forth, then arguably they have a higher opportunity or more opportunities open to them through both networks and wealth to get to those higher echelons of those job roles. So Absolutely. that's that's just talking purely about financials. I know we can go into more detail about why, you know, there's, there's more to it than just financials. But my question is this, the pandemic has arguably, well, arguably, I think it has, the news tells us, it's exacerbated that wealth gap divide. So 
one of the you know positive things from the pandemic, and there are some positives that have come out of this in terms of the way that we communicate, the way that we're hopefully more accepting of others, certainly accepting of difference, because we realize if we're cooped up with this, even the same people, if we're talking about the same things, we need change, we need difference in our lives to make things entertaining. But actually, fast forward, do we think we're actually going to push that speed of change back a little bit by actually exacerbating the wealth gap divide through something that taking off the political agenda and decisions made, but actually just pure on pandemic terms? Is this going to hold us back? Well, the first thing to say is that, it, it, in a sense, it's a great frustration. We don't in our business, but an awful lot of people do not talk about class. And class is fundamental in this country. And the LSE, two academics at the LSD a few years ago, and you usefully put it in the show notes, did a really, really great study called the the class ceiling. And it's great. And what it shows is absolutely uh, appalling, which is that if you come from a working class background, not only do you have less chance of getting into the profession, so they just looked at the professions, but you have less chance of moving up the professions by being promoted, and you will, in the course of your career, earn less money. Now, there's a cut across from race as well, because if you're poor and black, then that adds a dimension and actually you're even worse off. So you're absolutely right. What's key about the, about class, it seems to me, and wealth and those opportunities at the beginning? Two things to say. One is that they give you a set of networks. So those people who, you know, the Boris Johnsons and the Jacob Rees-Mogg's of the world, the Etonians, the, I mean, look, I'm a public school boy, you know, me. Um, you know, we, get, we were given confidence and networks in the very, very beginning, you know. And what people forget is that they think they've done it by themselves. And they haven't. Yeah. It's not the sheer talent of these people that got them where they were. Actually, they've had this extraordinary um, um, Angus Dayton, the great, not the not the nine o'clock news one, the <laughs> great economist, calls it the scaffold of privilege. And, oh no, scaffold of advantage, he calls it. Um, and so what that's about is it gets, I mean, it's easier to climb up the, the thing. So that's one thing to say about it. The second thing, which is peculiar, is the converse which is you'll often find that entrepreneurs and people who have been very successful, who've come from working class backgrounds, actually it's precisely the background that spurred them on to success. So you've got a kind of curious contradiction here that it's given them the I'm getting out of here motive, but predominantly in Britain, class privileges you in that, you know, on on the way out. So what happens in the pandemic is that if you're excluded, that one of the things that you can get at work is you can get those networks. It's one of the things that's useful, or many things that are not useful about staff networks, but one of the things that is useful is that staff networks, I mean, I know it from the lesbian and gay thing, is that what's peculiar about it is you can go to the staff network and you could be somebody who works in the post room and you can actually meet the person who's the head of brand. And it turns out that you're rather good at that sort of thing and you make the, the, the thing and then actually you get an access to showing them your work and then actually that's a, you know, so that's great. So in other words, those networks are incredibly important. And I am... Um, uh, uh, one of the, I think I alluded to it before, that on doling out this money around engineering, one of the, the couple of the projects, two or three of the projects, actually were about trying to see whether grad, undergraduate engineers could be fed earlier on into networks which would help them develop their careers. So they're really important. In the pandemic, those informal networks and the bumping into and the way you can mix with other people at work, that becomes hugely more difficult. Yeah. If you work in, 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 in if you live in inadequate accommodation, I don't mean to be critical about you, but if it's inadequate in a basic sense, there's not enough space, you're working in your bedroom, 
you know, it's overcrowded, blah, blah. That simply exacerbates all the initial disadvantages, which by going to work, you had a desk, you had a phone, yeah. internet, you know, all that. So absolutely, and it's particularly true for women. I mean, you know, notwithstanding there's some jolly nice chaps, and I'm sure you're one of them who shouldered the burden domestically with your partner. I'm not sure that you're done them in the sense that I have any evidence to suggest that. I'm just assuming <laughs> Nick, that you might. You assume correct that. for sure. I'm sure she'd come in. You mind just sort of hoping that you're a nice bloke? <laughs> but but University of Sussex did a study in uh, right at the beginning, uh, this first summer of the pandemic. They they asked two thousand women who have children and live with a man, which is still very popular, Nick, very yeah. popular indeed, who was shouldering the burden. And women were shouldering something like 65 to 70% of the domestic burden. That placed an enormous strain on women who were working. So there are all sorts of fault lines, I think, in the pandemic, and not least, of course, health inequalities, which were, again, I think, wrongly generalised around BAME, whereas actually it was very particular groups that were suffering uh, more from COVID than others. Um, so, yes, there's a series of, of, of inequalities that were absolutely exacerbated by the pandemic. So that's it's a shame because I, I felt we're on a you know we're on a, a bit of a wave and let's hope we can bring that wave back and that gap doesn't hold us back from uh, from. Real well, I was change. a bit shocked this morning. I was I was on a prep call for a, a seminar I'm doing, and somebody said, you know, oh well, you know, we, we won't be going back to the office. You know, that's no longer the normal. Blah blah. Please, no. You know, you, you no. Know, the normal is being in the same room or the same cave you know, as other people. It's all about... Well, you know. Interestingly, there again, even in that example, there's an assumption because one person's at home and enjoying it that everyone else wants the same. And it's not true. Some people still love being in an office. Some people love not being in an office. Some people love a, a mixture of the both. And it's well, definitely... Listen, if you're single and, you know, let's say for a moment you're single and you live on your own and you've got a bed sit or whatever, and it's perfectly nice, but maybe because of, you know, the amount of money you're earning, it's sort of a long way away from, say, if you were in London or the centre of town. And so actually, you know, blah, blah, blah. And maybe you don't have many friends. You know, all of that means that work actually becomes kind of socially rather important. Absolutely right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about, about about your book. I know we digress slightly, and I'm really keen to get into this. It's a it's a yeah, it's for HR professionals. In fact, it's for anyone who wants to make diversity part of their overall business strategy, right? So it's not just you know uh, specifically for HR leaders and HR professionals. For any business owner, anyone that wants to make a difference, anyone wants to really be inclusive. It's called, as we know, the power of difference. And just to reiterate to everybody in the show notes, the link directly through to that book so you can purchase it you can read out about it some fantastic reviews and more about it as well tell us more tell us more about the manifesto behind it what really at this moment in time pushed you to go you know what i'm motivated to write this a power of difference well the first thing was that lockdown came and didn't have any work so i had six months <laughs> at that point to fill so i thought well might i write a book but the interesting thing was it was right on the tip of my tongue i, I loved writing it because it, it is a workbook but I hope that because of the stories that I've woven into it and the, the experiences that I've tried to draw from other aspects of my life, I hope that it's a richer read. It's not sort of Heidi Does Diversity or kind of Inclusion 101. You know, it's not a sort of how-to book, although it's got lots of practical stuff in it. But I've, I've taken inspiration, really, from 
two or three things. Firstly, when we started Stonewall back in 1988-89, you know, this was the time when the headlines in the papers were things like Pufters in the pulpit. Um, you know, there were all the AIDS scares that happened at the beginning of the 80s and so on and so forth. We weren't the fashionable thing that we are now. I mean, I'm sure your son will be nobody in the playground of his school if he doesn't <laughs> if you don't have any gay friends or he has a lesbian godmother. I mean, no one will talk to him there. Well, I I can actually talk very openly about this. My daughter, who's 12, um, her very close friendship group, her best friend is uh, Emily, who's now called Ray, and another best friend. I lose lose track, but you're right. So it's it's really actually refreshing because they talk about it now so openly and without... The change is is extraordinary. And, and, but the point, the point I want to make about the change is that actually when you think of the speed with which it happened and the hostility which has been turned... If, so if you look at a very simple um, British Social Attitude survey, you know, the, do you approve of homosexual relationships was sort of before 30-70 and now it's 70-30. I mean, it is absolutely flipped yeah. you know, in terms of public opinion and so on and so on. Now, one of the things that I think businesses can learn from what happened in that change is this, we spent most of our time in Stonewall in the early days talking to the people we didn't agree with in order to find out what bigger principles could we agree about. So, for instance, if you were talking to certain kinds of religious people, there was no point having an argument with them about whether homosexuality was a sin or a a virtue or a vice. But there was a possibility to have a conversation with them about whether or not people should be treated equally under the law, because as religious yeah. people, they knew what it was like to be discriminated against. Transfer that to the business context. My whole proposition really is that the way that you, the, the way that diversity really matters is that you find through people's differences the common objectives on which you can collaborate. So I found, so part of the book will use these examples from Stonewall and other campaigning, which to me is fundamental politics. What's going on at the moment is not politics. What's going on at the moment is sectarian backbiting, whereas what politics and business is about is finding a common objective. And the point about being at business is you're not at home, you're not in the pub, you're not hanging around with your mates, you're in an organisation that has a goal and you've got to collaborate with other people to achieve it. So the book's all about how you combine difference and understand difference and the conflicts that are involved in that in order to do that. Second point, I would say, is the second inspiration. I live in Brighton naturally and um <laughs> great one listed there and <laughs> that's just me and the brighton bomb went off in 1984 and the ira tried to kill the british cabinet they failed but they did kill a politician called sir anthony berry anthony berry had a daughter called joe has a daughter called joe and i know joe through a project that i know called the forgiveness project again put it in the show notes it's the most wonderful project started by oh, a fantastic journalist called marina cantacasino and it's stories of people who've gone through enormous traumatic situations i mean maybe their partner or their child has been murdered maybe they were raped in a ghastly political situation maybe they were in south africa maybe their child was misdiagnosed and they got together with the doctors to stop it happening they're all people who've had these extraordinary things happen to them but they somehow and forgiveness is a question it's not a statement they've somehow found a way through that to the future and what I find inspiring about Joe is that when Joe's father was murdered, she went to Northern Ireland because she needed to try and understand why he died. 
just, you know, her thing was, don't make this meaningless. I need to understand that there was a reason for this. And so she went and she listened and she talked and she listened and she talked. And then in a bizarrely extraordinary piece of detection, because they, the detective went back through the hotel register in the ground and there was one name that they, for two years, there was one name they couldn't find. And on that page, there was a thumbprint and the thumbprint because Patrick McGee, who planted the bomb, had been arrested for shoplifting when he was 16. His print was on file. So they found out who the bomber was. They then were surveilling another IRA man and Patrick McGee went to visit him and they arrested Patrick. He got sent to prison. When the Good Friday Agreement happened, he was released as one of the prisoners who was uh, given amnesty. Jo continued to say that she would meet with him, which she did in the house of somebody called Annie McGee, who was a Sinn Féin councillor in Dublin. And they started a conversation, which they had in private for a long time. On the 20th anniversary of the bomb, and I've known Joe for a long while through this, I suggested that we had the conversation in public. So I mediated, moderated the conversation that they'd had in private, in public for the first time. And I've moderated it three times now. There's a remarkable thing that happens in it, and that is that Patrick doesn't apologise. He justifies what they did as a military campaign, which is really, really difficult for Joe to hear. However, he then will say, but every time I look at Joe, I then have to accept the human consequences of my action, the pain that I've caused her. And I also have to understand that if she's Anthony Berry's daughter, he must have been a great man. Joe will say the most difficult thing she has to listen to is Patrick justifying that in a military sense, but that what she's looking for is an answer. She wants to listen to his story and she wants him to hear her pain and her loss and her tragedy, which he does. My point is that if they can do that around that sort of extreme difference, is that some kind of anatomy for the rest of us to understand you can't agree about a murder but they worked together on a charity. They found a way of collaborating through the difference and the pain. So I find that those sort of stories incredibly inspiring because they show us the way in which we collaborate through difference, not through sameness. They show the way in which it's possible not to agree, but to collaborate. And it shows us in the first example that we can do it in pursuit of a common, a common objective. So broadly speaking, that's what the book's about. And there's loads of stories in there, loads of stuff and metaphors and, you know, all sorts. And some history, some contemporary. But that's really what I'm trying to say to people is see difference, value it, and then combine it, because that's how we live. I think that is a perfect way to basically finish the conversation here Simon I know I've caught your time for longer than we planned here today but honestly I've been absolutely enthralled it's been um if that's a, a little in, uh, insight into the book then I think it's going to be a, a real capturing exercise for everybody that goes and goes and purchases it Fantastic. it sounds sounds like a fascinating and really interesting reader thanks for oh there you go and positives from the pandemic are people like yourself having the opportunity to write these uh write these books that help promote change and, uh, and, and and promote diversity and inclusion going forward. So that's absolutely fantastic. I will, of course, put the episode, uh, links in the show notes for not just the book, but also to your website, which is, to mention it again, is diversitybydesign.co.uk. Um, there's a couple of uh, other links as well I will include in there. There's a, another podcast that, um, that Simon's done, uh, which I'll include on, which is on Kogan Page's YouTube channel. Um, I'll try and find that link as well to the Forgiveness Project. And uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation, Simon. So thank you ever so much for, for well, coming to the Nature Podcast. 
Bless you, and thank you very much indeed. And my only regret is that I'm not, you're not going to play us out on one of those guitars. No, I don't think that's a regret. As I say, I display them better than I play them. That would be a terrible way to finish if you could hear, hear me play. So I'll leave them on the <laughs> well, wall. Anyway, they look if nice. you play really badly, I can barely sing. So what we should do is you should play really bad and I'll sing very badly. It'll be a very bad band. That sounds like a good plan. I love music, so I try, but I'm not so good. Well, thanks anyway for giving giving such time and asking such lovely questions. And my absolute pleasure. And of course, if you are an HRND professional listening to this podcast and you want to find out more about either Simon, then please go to those links. Or if you need support with any kind of HR-related recruitment project, please do get in touch with myself or any of my team at www.jjrecruitment.com. And that link will also be in the show notes. So just thanks again Simon for joining me today thank you to all of you wonderful listeners for joining me on the podcast I look forward to bringing you the next episode real soon thank you thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host Nick Day CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters if you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy then please get in touch with Nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favourite podcast channels. Till next time.